bartenders in the seedier dives among the piers of San Francisco's north waterfront had started to recognize two men who were very new to the neighborhood. The duo would stop in and throw a little money around, not enough to get robbed when they left, but enough to lubricate conversation. Sometimes they bought drinks for women. Sometimes they struck up conversations with men. A few times they were spotted with a merchant seaman who was a regular at most of the local bars. His name was Morgan Hall. After about a week, they passed word around that they were going to throw a party at their house in Mill Valley, in Marin County, just over the Golden Gate Bridge. They lined up their guests, mostly slightly wayward young people who had been filtering into San Francisco for a few years. This was 1960, and what had been bubbling for a while was about to explode into a new youth counterculture. An exciting time to be in San Francisco, but that's a story for another time. On the day of the party, the duo met a third man. This was John Gittinger, who had followed the other two west from Washington, D.C., Those other two were David Rhodes and Walter Pasternak, all agents of the CIA. They gathered around the small device Gittinger had brought with him. It was an aerosol can with a trigger device. It was full of LSD-25. The plan was simple. Have a party, set off the can, and watch what happened. Except there was a problem. The night was particularly warm, and the apartment had no air conditioning, and so they wouldn't be able to close the windows. The three men stood, staring down at the little drug bomb, imagining defeat in their mission at the hands of the weather. Well, Gittinger wasn't having it. He hadn't flown across the continental U.S. with a bottle of acid to just quit. So if they had to cancel the party full of beatniks and prostitutes, then it would have to just be a party of one. Gittinger declared that he didn't think the device was working properly anyway, even if they could close the windows. So he shut himself in the bathroom, a room with no ventilation, and set off the LSD bomb. Mission accomplished. When this incident was related by David Rhodes during a testimony in front of a Senate investigation, Senator Ted Kennedy, just to clarify, phrased it this way. So, as I understand it, three grown men flew from the East Coast to the West Coast to spend a week in the bars out there to gather people for a party, and only one person went into the bathroom. Rhodes said, and only two of us were in the bars. Kennedy asked if they had taken any other trips to San Francisco, and Rhodes said, yes, sir, we did. For the purposes of psychologically profiling certain groups, he and Walter Pasternak had attended the first national convention of lesbians. The story of the LSD party that wasn't is one of my favorites in the largely disturbing body of history pertaining to CIA experimentation. 
I imagine the absurdity of two CIA scientists milling around the San Francisco youth culture looking for people to party with and to drug. But the story of that party isn't nearly the craziest thing that the CIA undertook in the name of the science of mind control. It wasn't even the craziest thing that happened in that house. MK Ultra and Operation Midnight Climax. This time on the Cold War Vault. Ultra. The word alone conjures anxiety and paranoia in conspiracy theorists. The subject is a perennial favorite among those interested in the stranger side of U.S. intelligence and the spookier side of government secrecy. It has found its way into some of the most outlandish accusations ever leveled against the Central Intelligence Agency and the federal government. But there's good reason for that. Because many, or most, or maybe all, of those outlandish accusations turn out, at least in part, to be true. At least in the planning, if not the execution. The projects and experiments under MKUltra were carried out in dense secrecy, with free-flowing funds and almost no accountability. So these things did get a little strange. Coupled with the urgency brought about by the ascendant Chinese and Soviet Union, the mastermind of the program, Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, was given a free hand to exploit any new technologies he saw fit in the service of the national defense. And he took advantage of that in full. The origin of not just MKUltra, but a whole suite of program predecessors, sisters, cousins, and descendants can be traced to what was likely Soviet disinformation in the first years of the Cold War. By 1947, reports were filtering in through intelligence channels that the Soviets were having significant successes in the field of truth serums, as they were called. Not to be outdone by the Soviets, the U.S. Navy began a truth serum program of its own with the uninspired cryptonym Project Chatter. They could have hardly done worse with something like Project Loose Lips. The program focused on the use of a few hallucinogens to enhance interrogation. Among them, LSD. In a 1951 report from a Bethesda Naval Medical Research Institute experiment on 20 subjects, all of them willing, I should add, the kind of things the Navy learned are laid out in detail. 0900. He laughs incoherently, uses language immoderately, and shows flight of ideas. 0930. Distortions of vision. The contour of objects appears fluid. 1030. He complains of wolves howling. 1100. He recites limericks and laughs at his own humor. 
1345. He complains of sirens, tuning whistles, and Morse code. He sees brightly colored birds and hears them singing, complains that the drug had transformed him into a television set because the paresthesis in his face and extremities seemed identical with the ripples and fade of a television screen. He believed that through this drug, one could control others by sending out impulses which could be picked up by whoever took the drug. Subject was unaware of the bizarre nature of this idea. 1540, Subject complains that the couch is moving in time with his heartbeat. 1800, Sleeping. Project Chatter learned little, but it did mark the earliest experimentation by the U.S. government with LSD. The project ended after the Korean War in 1953, but it was during that war that the CIA substantially expanded the work and began Chatter's far more zealous counterpart, Project Bluebird, under the control and creative direction of Dr. Sidney Gottlieb. Bluebird was truly a product of communist fear during the Korean War, and particularly the fear that the Chinese had perfected a means of brainwashing. In fact, the term in English is a direct transliteration of the Chinese term, wash brain. It was, so the reasoning went, that the only explanation for why POWs and a few defectors during the conflict would cooperate with the North Koreans and Chinese. To summarize the wordiness of Bluebird's official objectives, to lock down brains with secrets in them, to gain control of communist brains during interrogation, to make sure communists couldn't control American brains during interrogation, to boost memory, good in peacetime or war, and to explore the great unknown of all brains to do all things through novel means especially drugs. After just a year, in August 1951, Sidney Gottlieb directed that Project Bluebird be expanded, intensified, and centralized under his authority. The project was renamed Artichoke. Allegedly, so decades-old hearsay goes, it was because the artichoke was Gottlieb's favorite vegetable. Also, for inexplicable reasons, some researchers attribute it to the New York crime boss Ciro Terranova, the artichoke king. The world may never know, nor may it need to. It was at this point that far more intensive and ethically questionable medical experiments began. Operations like this were termed artichoke work by the CIA, which used as their foundations much that had been learned from some of the more notorious Nazi physicians who had escaped Nuremberg and made it into the hands of the U.S. If this sounds a little sinister, I want to point you to the biggest proponent of this link, Stephen Kinzer, an author and journalist who makes the claims explicitly in his book on Gottlieb, Poisoner-in-Chief. Kinzer claims that the early use of mescaline on unwitting subjects had been a project of doctors at the Dachau concentration camp, and that the CIA recruited Nazi torturers and vivisectionists to continue their work after the war. 
Also, that the U.S. Army brought various Nazi scientists to Fort Detrick as instructors on the use of sarin gas. Some of Kinzer's links are strong, not all. So make of his work what you will. In October 1952, Sidney Gottlieb's projects took another step with the development of Project MK-Delta. Though this was never implemented operationally, it laid the foundation for investigation into biochemicals and clandestine operations. It was essentially six months of practical preparation for the launch of two parallel programs that would put the CIA at the cutting edge of the sometimes sinister and sometimes silly, though always bizarre, explorations of the chemistry of mind control. M.K. Naomi took on the biochemical work of M.K. Delta, especially the biochemical warfare portfolios. Very little information about M.K. Naomi remains after the document Holocaust of 1973, which I spoke of in the last episode. Simply put, it nearly entirely erased the archival memory of Gottlieb's work. Despite that, with what we do know about its concurrent sibling program, it's safe to say that M.K. Naomi was charged with the production, storage, and development of the means of dissemination of chemical and biological agents for the CIA, separate from the U.S. Army's work at Fort Detrick, probably. That sibling program was the final manifestation of Sidney Gottlieb's vision for a wide-ranging project that could explore anywhere and in any way means of manipulating the human mind in the service of freedom, anti-communism, the United States, the CIA, and in no small part, his own curiosity. Of course, that was MKUltra. Authorized by the director of the CIA, Alan Dulles, on April 13, 1953, MKUltra began with a straightforward mandate. It was to research and develop chemical, biological, and radiological materials capable of employment in clandestine operations to control human behavior. Those were the words of the CIA Inspector General to the director in 1963. But at that point, MKUltra had expanded its portfolio to 149 sub-projects. There were 149 sub-projects, but a CIA memo to the chief of the MKUltra task force, created during a congressional investigation in 1977, breaks down the sub-projects into understandable pieces, mostly the ones that were innocent, the ones that were a little shadowy, and the ones that were blatantly illegal. It begins by saying that MKUltra, the so-called mind control program, with quotes enough to ensure an understanding of a rolling of the eyes, probably has caused more outcry than any other CIA activity, with the possible exception of the Bay of Pigs. Understand that while the breakdown of these numbers is valid, it's an understanding constructed in a particular political climate that had the agency sweating, tied to a chair under a single swinging light bulb. 
The numbers might be accurate, but the intention is definitely defensive. The unnamed author of this memo explains that from one year to the next, instead of creating continuations of existing projects, whole new projects were created to continue the work. So subproject 149 was actually just a continuation of 132, which was in turn a continuation of 42. So that reduces our overall number of MKUltra activities from the start. It isn't mentioned that this was probably done to ensure continued funding, despite a lack of concrete results. Mild cooking of the books. So I'll move on. After looking at the complete list of subprojects, 85 of them didn't even involve human experimentation. That is certainly true. My particular favorite, and what will be the subject of another episode in this series, was Subproject 4, continued in 15 and 19. It was the shunting of $5,500 to a professional magician to write a book on magic tricks. So no, not everything in MKUltra involved humans. Magicians, maybe. The memo continues. Forty of the subprojects that did involve human experimentation didn't raise any red flags for the congressional investigation, and no action was required in terms of investigation on the part of the CIA. Eighteen of those forty were because there were no drugs. These would have included the many hypnosis experiments. The remaining 22 of 40 didn't require any action because the drugs that were involved were considered harmless, and the subjects were willing and paid volunteers, and the experiments were done under medical supervision. In short, legally, with hefty paperwork submitted to the various institutional review boards, usually. The remaining, let's say, 24 subprojects were then broken down into two more groups. These were the experiments conducted by private institutions and those conducted in the safe houses in New York and San Francisco. Like the safe house in the beginning of this story. A quick word on that final breakdown. Despite the shadowy conspiracy theories or Manchurian candidate paranoia, the vast majority of MKUltra experimentation was done on university campuses and in research hospitals. Funding came from the CIA, that is true, but it came through grants and funds arranged through shell organizations who were in turn funded by the CIA. I feel like agency accounting might not be very exciting. It wasn't elaborate. It was the simplest kind of money laundering. No cloak and dagger, just cashier's checks. Sometimes cash, but actually that was rare because the CIA accountant really got annoyed without expense reports. There we have it, a mere 24 subprojects of MKUltra in which unwitting human subjects were administered a variety of drugs and observed, or in some cases, released into the wild onto the streets of New York or San Francisco. It's probably not in the best interest of most of the vault's audience that we delve into each of the subprojects. I'm certain that most of you would be interested on some level, but we'd be here all day. Talking about $500 to buy morning glory seeds or $5 for taxi fare. As an example, 
taken from the MKUltra briefing book of 1976, Sub-Project 1 was carried out at Princeton, and it was a chemistry project to isolate and characterize the alkaloids of those newly bought morning glory seeds. Sub-Project 2 might be a little juicier, and quite a bit more mysterious. It was a Stanford University-based project to determine the possible multiplying effect of using drug combinations to, quote, abolish consciousness. CIA funds were allocated for animal testing, and though it's unclear whether experiments were ever carried out on unwitting human subjects, the file does make clear that the CIA's own Morgan Hall, who we will investigate in a moment, was the main operator for the subproject. And where that name appears, unwitting human testing always follows. Subproject 6 was a program to get the pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly to produce LSD domestically, instead of relying on the foreign company Sandoz. Interestingly, Eli Lilly declined the $5,000 that was offered and did the work pro bono, or at least for some other unspecified favor from the CIA. Sometimes the subprojects were painfully mundane, allocating money to correct accounting errors. Sometimes they told and tell more interesting stories if you know what you're looking for. Subproject 30 allocated money for a petty cash fund at Fort Detrick for expenses that were hard to explain. Expenses that were itemized including a suitcase for biological and chemical sampling, animal food, rental cars, rifle slugs, inexplicably a check dictionary, and the rental of a cabin, which, if you listened to the last episode on the Frank Olson affair, you'll recognize almost certainly as the Deep Creek Lake site of the infamous LSD experiment. But what everyone wants to know about Probably the juiciest historical morsel in the record that remains is Subproject 42. This part of the story starts around 1953 when Sidney Gottlieb, the head of the CIA's mind control programs and a huge fan of LSD, approached George Hunter White a higher-up official in the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, the forerunner of the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA. Gottlieb had a proposition. He'd heard of George White by reputation, and not necessarily in a good way. George White's official title was the district supervisor for the District of Boston, though he'd really made his reputation in New York, particularly pursuing jazz musicians who he would entrap, or just plant drugs on and bust them. George White actually busted Billie Holiday. Apparently, he didn't like her big cars or her furs. Without editorializing too much, it's fair to say that George White was an aggressive drug cop who took his zeal and his passions too far. With slightly more editorializing, author Stephen Kinzer offers a description of George White. He says, White was the kind of narcotics agent who lived at the edge of the law and crossed over a lot. He used all of the substances that he confiscated, 
His use of alcohol and narcotics was legendary. To add to that, George White had a shaved head, was overweight, allegedly had the most beautiful blue eyes you've ever seen, he loved hashish, enjoyed high heels, and getting spanked. Of course, there was just one more thing that would make the whole package work for Sidney Gottlieb. George Hunter White had been a colonel in the Office of Strategic Services during World War II, the predecessor to the CIA. He had been an instructor at Special Training School Number 103 in Canada, what he and other OSS officers dubbed the School of Mayhem and Murder. So he understood the potentially dirty world of intelligence and the slippery thing that strict rules and laws and ethics can be. He understood them, and so he could ignore them. Gottlieb proposed that White become a consultant for the CIA. You see, Sidney Gottlieb had spent the second half of 1952 bouncing from European safe house to European safe house, undertaking experiments with LSD on unwitting subjects, meeting them in bars and slipping a variety of psychedelic substances into their drinks. But despite all of his free-form experimentation, Gottlieb wasn't seeing the results that he wanted. And a more elaborate, potentially slightly more controlled means of surreptitious experimentation would be necessary. And that is where a partnership with the Bureau of Narcotics came in. And George White was the perfect man for the job. In an interview with someone who had worked under Sidney Gottlieb, an attempt was made to explain the existence of George White as the man in charge of a top-secret government program. He said, We were Ivy League, white, middle class. We were naive, totally naive about this. And he felt pretty expert. He knew the whores, the pimps, the people who brought in the drugs. He was a pretty wild man. That certainly seems true. George White married his second wife in 1951. Albertine shared many of George's interests, like group sex, fetish scenes involving leather boots, and the drugging of their friends and acquaintances. Sidney Gottlieb saw these as virtues in the experiment he was about to create. In early 1953, through money filtered to George White, now under the alias Morgan Hall, from the CIA through the Bureau of Narcotics, two adjacent apartments were rented at 81 Bedford Street in Greenwich Village. A hole in the wall between the apartments was opened so that a mirror for spying could be installed. Photographic equipment was hidden around the apartment and operated through the mirror. In the public-facing apartment, George White set up a full bar and space to entertain. By the fall of 1953, George, and almost certainly Albertine, began cruising the village for new friends to bring back to the Bedford Street safe house. Depending on the crowd, his alter ego, Morgan Hall, was a merchant seaman or a bohemian artist. He met an array of strange characters involved in drugs, prostitution, gambling, and pornography. And all of them were at one point or another subject to George and Albertine's significant stash of drugs, usually unwittingly. All the while, 
Sidney Gottlieb's LSD experiments marched on. Then, at the beginning of 1955, circumstances would change the direction of the Bedford Street project because George White took a new job with the Bureau of Narcotics, this time in San Francisco. For Sidney Gottlieb, there had hardly been a better turn of events because Sidney Gottlieb now envisioned something even more outrageous and something that his friend George White would find stimulating. MK Ultra Subproject 42 would set up a new safe house in San Francisco. And this is more usually remembered by the public as Operation Midnight Climax. This time, the unwitting dosing of LSD and other drugs was going to be mixed with sex. And lots of it. George White set up shop in San Francisco in what is today a very different kind of neighborhood. It was, and is, an apartment at 225 Chestnut Street on Telegraph Hill, about a 10-minute walk from the local bars. He took the opportunity to create his dream den of sin, which he never called anything but the pad. In the words of a story in the San Francisco Chronicle, George White gave his pad the desired French whorehouse look, posters of French art, a photo of a French can-can dancer, and kinky women in bondage and domination poses. Some years later, the mayor of Sausalito and former madam Sally Stanford suggested in an interview that the CIA should have consulted her on how to run a brothel, or at least how to decorate it. She said it was decorated in red and white and early May West, which was the scope of their minds. When I had my places, they were filled with good French furniture, lace curtains, oriental rugs. Maybe they thought they were going first class with those pictures of can-can dancers. Well, I knew George White, and that kind of decor sounds like his kind of taste. An agent for the Bureau of Narcotics who had frequented the pad remarked frankly, it was supposed to look rich, but it was furnished like crap. While George White decorated, Sidney Gottlieb got to work on the bureaucracy and the bookkeeping. The CIA records show a meticulous accounting of everything that would be needed to set up shop in the Telegraph Hill pad. George White's vision for the place was approved item by item by Sidney Gottlieb with more than 100 line items. Pillows, lamps, ashtrays, an ice bucket, mattresses, what you might expect, along with a request for an easel with an unfinished painting, two busts, two statuettes, and a telescope. In return, he wanted receipts for the purchase of liquor and the taxi fares. The only thing that George White was not to record were his payments to prostitutes. Even rough-and-tumble George White needed a little help to get the ball rolling, so he turned to a fellow former military intelligence officer named Ira Feldman, who had come back to the U.S. and moved to California to run a chicken farm. Ira Feldman jumped at the opportunity to get back into intelligence of a sort. He was hired as an undercover operative for the Bureau of Narcotics, posing as a pimp, 
which netted him six very real-world San Francisco prostitutes in his employ. He also ran sting operations in which he paid his informants in heroin. This was just what George White was looking for. It was time to bring Feldman into Operation Midnight Climax. Feldman used his connections as a pimp to recruit prostitutes for MKUltra. Some knew eventually, some never did. But they were given simple instructions to bring men back to the pad, to dose them with LSD, and to try to ply information from them just to see if they would talk. Usually, that would be coupled with sex acts. The women were paid some amount in cash, 50 to $100, but also given a get-out-of-jail-free card, courtesy of George White. But that was not enough for Sidney Gottlieb, who now had even bigger ideas. What about using sex as a multiplier in conjunction with LSD and the 50 or so other concoctions he was testing in San Francisco? he could create a systematic study of how sex and drugs make men give away their secrets. It was genius. From his position behind the secret mirror, with enough audiovisual surveillance equipment installed that one technician said, if you spilled your drink, you'd electrocute yourself, George White took up his position with a pitcher of martinis and watched the sessions unfold. Not always alone, sometimes with Ira Feldman and sometimes Sidney Gottlieb, who would fly to San Francisco to check up on the goings-on and then provide some new chemical he was interested in and allegedly conduct an ongoing affair with George White's wife, Albertine, on the safe house couch after George had passed out from too many martinis. A CIA psychologist tried to describe all this in congressional testimony in 1975. And I want you to think about just how far off the rails of normalcy things had gotten with the project at this point. The testimony went, We were interested in the combination of drugs with sex acts. We looked at the various pleasure positions used by prostitutes and others. This was well before anything like the Kama Sutra had become widely popular. Some of the women, the professionals, were very adept at their practices. This also led to what was described in congressional testimony as, quote, the most pornographic collection I ever saw, end quote. These were pornographic films shot and paid for by the CIA. But now, in 1956, Sidney Gottlieb wanted to go bigger, and so a second West Coast safe house was opened in the town of Mill Valley, with more privacy and more land to experiment. This was the safe house from the defunct party at the start of the story. Sex, drugs, sure, but also Gottlieb's pet projects. Stink bombs, itching powder, sneezing powder, diarrhea inducers, and of course, aerosolized LSD, all used on men who had met one of MKUltra's prostitutes and went out to a party. This unbridled insanity had become a part of Midnight Climax, 
Stephen Kinzer, author of Poisoner in Chief, as I've mentioned before, relates a later assessment of George White's career. When he wasn't operating a national security whorehouse, White would cruise the streets of San Francisco, tracking down drug pushers for the Narcotics Bureau. Sometimes after a tough day on the beat, he invited his narco buddies up to the safe house for a little R&R. Occasionally, they unzipped their inhibitions and partied on the premises, much to the chagrin of the neighbors who began to complain about the men with guns and shoulder holsters chasing after women in various states of undress. So, how to wrap up this madness? Well, the party couldn't last forever. In 1963, the CIA Inspector General finally had a look at the issues of unwitting human testing by Sidney Gottlieb and the crew at Fort Detrick. And so that era was forced to come to an end. Without the benefits provided by the human testing in the safe houses and in the various bars around San Francisco, there was really no point in continuing the operation of the pad. The work could move back to the hospitals and prisons and other institutions where it had been going on the whole time anyway. And so the San Francisco safe houses were closed in 1964. But MKUltra, subproject 42, wasn't over. It was continued in the last subproject of the MKUltra program, number 149. $10,000 in sterile checks were issued from January 1964 to March 1965. They were approved by Sidney Gottlieb. The eyes-only note affixed to this reads, This file appears in all respects to be a duplicate of the Morgan Hall file. It may have been a continuation of Hall's work in New York after he went to the West Coast. You see, the New York safe house hadn't closed, so George White and Sidney Gottlieb had another 14 months to raise a little hell in the name of science. Thank you for stopping by The Vault. This episode was researched, written, and produced by DJ Kinney. That's me. A couple of newsworthy notes the Cold War Vault gift shop is open. It has shirts and stickers and mugs, and you can find it at coldwarvault.com slash gift shop. I would love to see everyone who listens to The Vault like the page on Facebook. It helps. But what helps me to bring you more interesting content faster is to like, subscribe, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. If you feel a little funny, it's probably just the LSD. Until next time.